The text that we'll be focusing on this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we're now into uh, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 4, and this is probably as good a time as any to uh, take a moment to pause and just get a sense of the ground that we have covered so far. It's important for us to recognize that uh, the author, uh, the preacher, is making a sustained argument as he journeys through Ecclesiastes. Uh, Sometimes it doesn't always seem like that. Sometimes it seems as though he might be even contradicting himself, uh, saying things that he has earlier denied. Uh, But he isn't contradicting himself, uh, and that means it's our task to go slowly and carefully and consider the point that the, the preacher is making. And so far, as we've seen, the focus of his argument has been on the futility of chasing after wind. Uh, chapter 1 landed on that conclusion that, that there really is no gain to be taken from this life. There's nothing that we can get out of this life for ourselves. Uh, there, there are, uh, there's no one who can make straight what God has made crooked. Chapter 2 then illustrated that by walking us down some of the dead-end roads that the, the preacher himself, Solomon, took to reach that conclusion. And he shows us how they lead us nowhere, whether it's the pursuit of pleasure or the pursuit of laughter or parties or money or real estate or music or art or even wisdom and philosophy. They do not lead anywhere that is lasting and life-giving. Man, the point is, man does not have the power within himself to get anything out of this life that he can keep. And then finally, chapter 3, considered all of the the times and seasons of our lives, uh, and and it comes to the conclusion that we are simply not in control of our lives. One of the great illusions of the human race that sustains so much of what we do is this belief that we are the, the master of our destiny. We are in control of the course of our lives. Well, chapter 3 helps us to see, no, God remains absolutely sovereign, and the seasons of your life are seasons that God has ordained you to go through. You are not in control. Well, the chapter then, at every turn uh, so far, the the chapters have been landing on the same conclusion. There is no gain that we can take for ourselves from our own strength out of this life, but rather, there's nothing better for us than to fear God, to live our lives before Him, and to rejoice in this life as a gift from God. If you can follow the argument that far, then you'll see how chapter 4 lands right into the same uh, argument. Uh, So, so far we've seen the futility of chasing after the wind. Chapter 4 then takes us into the evil of chasing after the wind. It's not just futile, it is also evil. Uh, So chapter 4, it will continue to explore this theme of futility. We see examples of that, but it really brings out the misery that that we cause to ourselves and to others by our pursuits of of wind. So in chapter 4, it begins with a a second look at the misery and oppression of this world. Verse 1, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed 
and they have no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Here it is. Take another look at this world. Let's see it again. Go back to those coal mines in Rome uh, where young children, the children of slaves from ages five and onwards, uh, would work covered in black soot, their, their tiny muscles doing their best to load up wheelbarrows full of coal. And that's going to be their entire life if they live to adulthood. And consider this well. This is the cost of chasing after the wind. This is the the ugly side of an empire that is pursuing glory. Not only is it, as Solomon has shown us, futile, those at the top are not going to reach the, the, the destiny that they're hoping for, but even worse, it comes at a terrible human price for those at the bottom. Someone always has to pay the price. And the sad thing is this has gone on, hasn't it, for every century of human history. In every century, the powerful have pursued riches and glory, chasing after the wind, and hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children have paid the price. You can see it in the world today. Uh, UNICEF uh, reports that, the, that approximately 218 million children uh, work uh, full-time, uh, with about 126 million working in hazardous situations such as mines with chemicals and pesticides uh, in, in agriculture or working with dangerous machinery. And for many of them, this is the only life they will ever know. Consider how cruel this world is to those at the bottom. Uh, is Solomon wrong in what he says? That it, when you look honestly at this world, it, it does seem as though the dead are better off than the living. It's better to not have been born and brought into this world than to have been brought in as one of those children. Look at the misery and brokenness of this world. Look, too, at the children whose, whose lives are utterly broken by warfare in places like Yemen or in Syria. Now, we, we want to shield our minds as soon as we think about it because it's unbearable to, to think about. But, but let's not. Let's, let's not put it from our minds. Take a hard look and see if you don't find yourself agreeing with what Solomon says. And some of them are, are literally so traumatized by war that they've lost their ability to speak. Uh, something psychologically has broken within them. There are examples of this in, in a number of cases where they just they can't speak. They're mute because of the trauma of warfare that they've endured. Well, take a good hard look at the tears of the oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. And so Solomon says the dead are, are better off because they don't have to see this misery. Or better off yet are those who were never born. Seems as though Solomon is right. And so with that opening in this chapter, Solomon takes us right back into the, the rat race that we've seen in chapters 2, especially chapter 2. And Solomon shows us not only that is this empty and futile for those at the top, but it also comes at an unspeakable cost for those at the bottom. The human race, it's built in within all of us. We chase after power. We chase after glory or riches or fame. And not only are those, are those empty and futile pursuits, but they will always come at a price that either we or someone else will have to pay. 
And you look at the glory of every great world empire and you see the same thing. Whether it's Assyria or Babylon or Persia or Rome or the great British Empire or the Dutch East India Company, uh, whatever it is, the, the glory of the great empire today, the great empire of the United States, that glory was built on the backs of countless hundreds of thousands of slaves, men, women, and children who spent their years in anguish and tears. Unless we should think that, well, now, you know, today we've moved past that. Uh, Take a look at at what happens in the womb. Watch an actual abortion procedure and tell me that you don't see the same thing. Uh, No one to comfort them. It's humanity chasing after the wind, and someone always pays the price. The one person's life is futile and empty, and the other's is so miserable that Solomon says it's better off to never have existed. Well, with those raw facts then in mind, Solomon uh, considers again the toil uh, and the labor. Uh, and, and he asks himself, what drives all of this toil? What makes us work so hard and oppress, each other's, uh, oppress one another so cruelly? Uh, and he says in verse 4, I saw all toil and all skill and work comes from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Now consider what Solomon says, and I think you'll find He's speaking truthfully here. When you look at uh, the work and the toil that takes place in our world under the sun, consider how much of it is simply driven by envy, trying to get as much or more than your neighbor. Again, is Solomon wrong here? You go to downtown Toronto, uh, look at the fancy suits, uh, the designer clothes, the Audis and Mercedes Benzes and the BMWs, and with that endless toil, and you ask, what drives it? For the most part, it is envy. It is each man trying or or woman trying to get more than their neighbor. Uh, You go to the the suburbs uh, where where you have these bedroom communities, giant houses that sit, sit empty all day because their owners are preoccupied with getting bigger houses and better stuff so they can move into a nicer neighborhood where those houses are even bigger and will continue to sit empty. Consider how much of what we do is driven by envy. Envy that, that looks over at one's neighbor and sees or maybe just suspects that they might be getting more out of this life than me. Uh, and so we work harder and we spend more hours uh, to, to get the bigger house, the newer car, the, the latest iPhone, a more attractive body, a more attractive spouse, a greater list of accomplishments or adventures uh, or places that we've been to, traveled to, and seen, or more popularity or fame or respect. And at the bottom, it is all driven by envy. A few times already in this course over the the book of Ecclesiastes, we've spoken about this fear of missing out, right? That that we all all feel a sense of that that fear of missing out. Uh, And how do you actually measure that, that you are missing out? Well, the only way to measure that is by looking over at your neighbor and asking, what are they enjoying that I'm not? Uh, When you suspect that the person next to you uh, has what you don't have, then that sudden, uh, suddenly that dread settles into your heart that maybe I'm going down the wrong course. Maybe I'm not doing the right thing because it seems as though I am missing out. Well, that that is the what we call the rat race. 
Uh, Solomon's right. All toil and skill and work comes from man's envy of his neighbor. And that too, it, it is vanity and striving after the wind. Now here's the thing, the fool, Solomon says, the fool looks at all of that, he sees the envy and greed for what it is, he sees the oppression as well, the cost that that pursuit of riches and glory comes at, and he rightly recognizes it's all evil and corrupt, but then his response is to stay home and do nothing. He says the fool then folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. He sits on his butt on a throne of of self-righteousness. I'm not like those greedy Wall Street capitalists. And he does nothing, and he blames it on on, on those who are greedy. He says it's, it's their fault that this world is the miserable place that it is. So he folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. His body, which God designed to work, instead wastes away because he does nothing. Incidentally, these two verses back-to-back, they really provide a pretty good description of our culture, don't they? Uh, And the two opposing ends of of the political spectrum. Uh, Some look at at, uh, all the big corporations uh, chasing after wealth, and and they see what what they're rightly seeing. They, They are seeing oppression, envy, greed, those who are at the top of the ladder trying to get the biggest piece of the pie for themselves. Who can deny that that's true? And who can deny that that comes at a severe cost for those who are at the bottom? You look at the sweatshops in in other parts of the world, and and they suffer so that we can have the cheapest or the best stuff. It's true. But then what what, what, what does the fool do? He folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. He gives himself over to empty dreams, to ideologies that are are foolish, that that have proved to be fruitless, that are out of touch with reality, or he spends his time smoking pot, or, or otherwise just slowly withering away for lack of hard work. God made you to work. Well, here Solomon doesn't offer a political system. Uh, he doesn't say you, you should veer to the right or you should veer to the left. Uh, instead, he wants, to see, he wants us to see the, the folly and the stupidity at both ends, both extremes at least, of, of the equation. And he says, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. On the one side, you have, you have those who have two handfuls full of stuff, and with that stuff, endless toil, striving after the wind. And on the other hand, you have the fool with uh, not a handful of anything. His hands are empty because he refuses to work. Well, Solomon says, better one handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. See, the one who fears God will learn what it means to, to, to possess a single handful with contentment. Only the one who fears God will know how to embrace hard work while also turning away from the greed that drives so much of the hard work that goes on and only brings strife. The one who fears God recognizes there's no toil or, or, or excuse me, there, there's no gain or reward from, from our toil in this life uh, that, that we can get for ourselves. And so the one who fears God entrusts himself to God and finds contentment even in the midst of his toil. He's not driven by envy. 
This is exactly what you three ladies are uh, professing, uh, what you mean by the promise, uh, as part of the promises you make to forsake the world. It means you've, you've seen this. You've looked out at this world. You, you see the gods that, that people are pursuing, the selfishness, uh, the emptiness, and the evil and oppression that comes from that. And you say, that's not my inheritance. That's not what I want from this life. I, I recognize those things are perishing, and, and I will not uh, live for that. You think of what the Apostle John says, right, in 1 John 2, uh, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Is that not what, what Solomon is describing here uh, in, in chapter 4? All of that is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so in your, in your profession of faith too, you're declaring before God, that's not going to be my life, pursuing the wind. Uh, it's, it's like David says in Psalm 16, the Lord shall be my portion and my inheritance, and because of him, the lines have fallen from me in pleasant places, and I have a beautiful inheritance. So there it is, the, the rat race is driven by, or it's marked by oppression, it is driven by envy. Thirdly, it is also marked by loneliness. Verse 7, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. I take a look again at, at the gigantic houses in the suburbs of the wealthy, those houses that sit empty all day. Consider how many of their owners live profoundly lonely lives. All the luxuries in the world they possess, and yet they have no one to enjoy those things with. It's the very nature of greed and envy is it's selfish. Right? It's a worship of self. Uh, and we, we, when we worship ourselves, it should come as no surprise to us that we will find ourselves profoundly alone and with no one to keep us company but the idol of our work. And this is true whether we are, uh, whatever we are greedy for, whether we are greedy and envious of, of money and wealth or even greedy of popularity or prestige or fame uh, or, or even of adventures and, and travel Whatever drives your greed, if it is greed, it will leave you in the end alone. Selfishness uh, always leads to loneliness. It's not just an unhappy coincidence that those who spend their lives uh, pursuing wealth end up living by themselves. You go to downtown Toronto, for example, you go to the financial sectors, uh, and just look at how many men and women are, are divorced, or even on their third or fourth marriages, or have given up on marriage altogether and are just finding some sort of superficial comfort at strip clubs and bars. Why? Because they've given their lives to pursuing a lonely, selfish pursuit that will always leave them alone. And see, the pursuit of wealth is not just an empty pursuit, it's a lonely pursuit because it's a self-interested pursuit. And so here comes the third uh, better. You notice there's a series of betters in this chapter. Uh, here's the third one. Solomon reflects on that loneliness of the rat race, and he, and he recognizes this very simple truth. Two are better than one. 
because they at least have a good reward for their toil. If one falls, uh, he will lift, the other will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And although a man might quickly prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Two are better than one because they have reward for their toil. And what is that reward? It's the reward of friendship, journeying together along the road of life. A woe to him who has uh, no one by his side throughout the course of his journey in a life that's already full of, of toil and strife. Uh, now, uh, when he speaks of the threefold cord, we shouldn't read too much into that. Some have said that's me and my friend and God, or me and my wife and God. Uh, it's, not, it's not there explicitly in the text. The point is, you can't make a threefold cord out of only two, or you can't make a, a strong cord out of only two strands. You need at least three to, to build a braid or, or some other threefold cord. Uh, the point is, there's value to friendship. Uh, and that value is more than the sum of its parts. You can easily break one chord. You can easily break two chords. You could easily break three chords, but you put them together and you cannot break them. And consider this, true companionship, true, true friendship is a gift from God. It's a gift that you cannot buy with money. You cannot get true friendship with popularity. Uh, you, you cannot get it by your striving. It's a gift from God that belongs ultimately to those who fear God and love Him. Uh, two individuals whose lives are fundamentally selfish, fundamentally greedy, uh, where they're both determined to get something for themselves out of this life. Though they may find each other along the way, they may journey part of the, their lives together. At the end of the day, they're walking in separate directions because each is living for themselves. Each is pursuing their own end. Well, there's a deeper and truer companionship that's enjoyed only by those who fear God, who aren't seeking to get something for themselves, but want to walk the journey of life under the favor of God and for His glory. There's a shared goal. There's a shared pursuit. And that's where true love also can take shape. They're free to serve one another without self-interest, without ulterior motives, and truly out of out of love. Again, this is part of the vows that you are making today as you recognize and commit yourselves to, to the Lord, that you are also committing yourselves to His church. That's the last question, right, that's asked of you. Do you firmly resolve to commit your whole life to the Lord's service as a living member of His church? I recognize this, you weren't meant to make this journey alone. God has given us as Christians to stand together, to support each other, to hold each other up when one stumbles. And really, isn't that such a contrast to the way the world lives, the, the loneliness and, and isolation you find in this world? Christ calls us to commit our, our, our lives not only to Him, but because we are equally together committed to Him, we get to, we have the freedom to also commit our lives to one another, to build each other up uh, without uh, ulterior motive. So the, the great rat race then, it, it's marked by oppression, it's marked by envy, it's marked by loneliness. Uh, and then lastly, it's marked by this inescapable reality, this is where the, the chapter concludes, this reality that whatever goes up must eventually come down. Uh, that the lucky few who actually manage to get to the top of the ladder, whatever they suppose that ladder is, 
will eventually still have nowhere to go but down, and they will fall in due time. That's what verses 13 to 16 are about. Uh, So he says in verse 13, Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after wind. It's really a familiar story. We've probably all seen examples of this. Uh, You see it in business. You see it in politics. Uh, You see it playing out right now in dozens of countries around the world. Young, smart, charismatic leaders that that somehow manage to, to lead a revolution and they get waves, hordes of people behind them. They ascend to the top faster than, than anyone could ever have imagined. They topple the old regime uh, and they start something new. But the truth is, he who lives by the mob will always die by the mob. Once at the top, there's nowhere to go but fall, and they always will fall. Now, they fall in different ways. Some become complacent. That's this old foolish king who just doesn't know how to take advice anymore. Uh, some become paranoid. Uh, Solomon uh, would have known this well from his own father's history uh, when when King Saul, uh, once he got to the top, became paranoid, uh, determined that that people were trying to topple him, and he ended up pursuing David, trying to kill him. You see this, uh, you look at what happened recently uh, to the old regime of Robert Mugabe in in Zimbabwe. If you've been following the news, you know that uh, his old regime is uh, undergoing somewhat of an overthrow Uh, He had led an amazing popular revolution in in, uh, 1980. He was hailed by a hero, by all of his countrymen, uh, made it to the top in in record speed. But once he was there, once he was in power and realized, oh, I actually have to rule this country, he ruled it with an iron fist. Uh, Until a couple of years ago, he ended up being removed from the presidency by his own party, his old allies that kicked him out uh, and and decided uh, he's no longer useful to his party. Uh, He who lives by the mob will die by the mob. It's the story of of fame and popularity and power that that so many of us give our lives to pursuing. And few of us actually make it there. But even those who do, they quickly discover how fickle people are. uh, how, How quickly those who got them there will abandon them in pursuit of someone else. Fame and and popularity are as fleeting uh, as everything else under the sun. And Solomon says that too, it it is vanity and chasing after the wind. As Christians, this is another one of those idols that we say no to. I will not live for fame. I will not live for popularity. I will not live for power. So there it is then. The pursuit of the wind, whatever that wind might be, uh, it's not only, utter, it's not only uh, utterly futile, it is also unspeakably cruel, uh, unbearably miserable, and profoundly alone. If you worship yourself, you will destroy others in the process of getting whatever you're trying to get, and in the end you'll still find yourself utterly alone. It's a sad but true description of the human race. And this is exactly where the gospel needs to break in. Because God, as we see in the gospel, God looks down on that human race. 
a human race committed each one to themselves, uh, worshiping the wind, uh, selfish, envious, and greedy. Uh, and God sees, God sees better than we see all of the cruelty and suffering that takes place in this world because of our pursuit of our idols. God sees every child maimed by war. Uh, God sees every girl trapped in human trafficking, sold and abused for the benefit of her pimp and for the benefit of her clients. God sees every infant torn to pieces in the womb. God sees it, and God sees it for what it is, not just a problem of some people, but a human problem, a problem that afflicts us all and lives in all of our hearts. It's a human problem stemming from selfish, cruel human hearts who easily, happily trade one another in for our own profit and ends. Well, the gospel is that that righteous, holy God, uh, who, who might well have extinguished uh, such a miserable and selfish human race, uh, who might well have just thrown us all into hell for sins we are most deserving of judgment for, instead that God showed the depth of his love and compassion by coming to this world to die for those people, to redeem us, to bring us back to himself, to deliver us from the emptiness of our old way of life, and to make us then into a new people. As you young ladies stand before God about to make your profession of faith, you understand that the old darkness, which lives in your heart as well, it finds its way of creeping back up into our hearts. Uh, even cruelties that we can't imagine ourselves doing. If we're humble and honest as we look out at the human race, we realize, I could be that person too. I could be doing those same things. Uh, it's only by God's grace that you've had the privilege, and it is privilege, uh, of being raised among God's covenant people. That God has used these means, your parents, your teachers, the preaching of the word, the fellowship of other Christians, that God has used these means to lead you to himself and into the kingdom of his son. And so when, when we make our profession of faith, we, we recognize not only am I forsaking an empty, dark world, but I'm, I'm coming to a God of grace, who's, and all that I'm doing is a response to his grace. Uh, whether we're born in the church or brought into the church from outside, it is all by God's grace. And we also know that that grace leads us to continual sanctification. A profession of faith is not the end of the road for you. It's a milestone along the way. Now, the current of the world will still pull against you. All those idols will still tug on your hearts as well. That's why the Christian life, it's a life of swimming upstream against the current by God's grace. It's also why it's part of our vows when we make profession of faith that we say we detest ourselves uh, because of our sin and we're committed to crucifying our old flesh. It's pretty strong language, isn't it? And of course, it doesn't mean you, you hate yourself as a person, uh, but it means you hate the person that you know you would be left to yourself apart from God's grace. We know all too well the kind of people that we would be. And we're committed then to seeing that selfish angry, bitter, greedy, proud person die before the cross of Christ and for the Spirit of God to bring a new person to life. So, brothers and sisters, let this chapter humble us before God. Uh, the truth is the situation's worse than we thought. Uh, not only do we easily chase after the wind, but we know, if we're honest, we've often hurt other people along the way. 
We, we disregard the dignity of our fellow man in order to get what turns out to be an empty, meaningless God. Uh, the, the misery of this world is not a problem of a few bad apples. If we're honest, it's a problem that we all have within us. But we know that's the misery Christ came to save us from. So let's each of us examine ourselves uh, and our lives honestly before God and let him do the surgery that God needs to do. Uh, if there is still chasing after the wind, greed, pride, selfishness in your heart that you recognize, uh, think hard about where you're going with that. What are you pursuing with that? What do you expect to receive from that? Uh, and what boundaries are you willing to violate to get there? Think about that life and then compare that with the grace and the new life that the gospel sets before you. This life here under the sun, it's a brief life followed by an inescapable end that is death. What kind of ending or what kind of new beginning will that be? Amen.